All right, so the book of Jonah is where we are this evening. Again, we were here this morning, and this is part two, and we'll finish it tonight. It's a very small book. There's only 48 verses, uh, but it's packed with tremendous truths. And uh, even though I said this morning, uh, you're neither a preacher nor a prophet, and so you say, well, what has it got to do with me? And as we're finding out, it's got plenty to do with all of us. Uh, because it's to do with this attitude this particular preacher had when God challenged him to go to the Ninevites and to preach a message, and he didn't want to do it. And he didn't want to do it because he did not want them to repent. He knew that if he would go and he would preach a message of judgment, that there was a good chance that perhaps they would repent, and that's the last thing he wanted because these were Israel's bitterest enemies. And they were a cruel, wicked, ungodly, pagan people, the Assyrians. And so he ran in the opposite direction and uh, ended up uh, off the coast of Spain. And uh, a terrible storm arose that God caused. And uh, the sailors then, uh, being pagans as they were, uh, cried unto their gods, but nothing would stop this. And so they quickly realized there's a reason for this because it was an ignoler storm they'd ever encountered. And they quickly found out that Job, or Job, Jonah was the cause of the problem. And so he says, well, throw me overboard and your problems will be over. But they didn't want to do that. And so they kept rowing, but nothing would stop the storm until they literally threw him overboard and immediately the storm ceased. And then, of course, he was swallowed up by that great fish. And uh, we saw this morning... Uh, how when that happened, the storm immediately stopped and uh, those sailors repented and they turned to the living God, the one true and living God. And here then was jo Jonah and here he is in the last verse of the first chapter where we finished this morning. It says, now, Jonah, sorry, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So this message is called The World's Most Reluctant Preacher. And in the first chapter, he was the world's most reluctant preacher. In fact, he was more than that. He was a rebellious preacher, actually. I should have entitled it. But here we're going to see in this second chapter that he is not just a reluctant preacher, but now he is a repentant preacher because he repents. Now, we need not get hung up on the whole fish business. The Bible doesn't say it was a whale. It says it was a great fish that God prepared. And it swallowed him whole alive. And for three days and three nights, that's where he was in the belly of this great fish. And we saw that Jesus himself in the Gospels authenticated this story by saying it was a sign and of course it was a sign and a type of him who would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and then of course he would be resurrected again. And so we have no doubt that we do not need to worry and wonder how God did this. If God is the creator of the ends of the earth, then surely he could create a great fish specifically to swallow this man. Can you imagine how uncomfortable it must have been in the belly of this great fish? It would be pitch black for a start. The heat would be unbearable. The stench, it would be fetid. I mean, probably whatever that great fish had for its breakfast and its lunch and its dinner and its supper was sloshing about where he was. And never mind the gastric juices inside the belly of that great fish. It must have been a horrible experience. It must have been like hell to him. And he had to suffer that for three days and three nights. If only he had done what God told him to do in the first place. If only he had repented instead of saying, I want to die, throw me overboard. But he didn't. And as I said this morning, God was going to get this man back on track. No matter what it took, even if he had to prepare a great fish, and even this man had to spend three day, days and three nights in his belly. So here he is. He's in deep trouble and he knows it. He's alive 
but he's probably wishing now he was dead. I mean, this is almost worse than death itself. But here he is. And in the midst of this, in chapter 2, he prays this incredible prayer of repentance. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me. I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. Here he is in trouble. Here he is the one who is himself threatened with death. Here he is the one where in a sense the judgment of God is on him. And what does he do? He cries on to the Lord for mercy because of his affliction. Many a backslider, many a man or woman who is on the run from God, when they get really, really into trouble, when they come to the end of the rope, when the situation becomes so great that they cry on to the Lord. Like the prodigal in the far country, when it got to the stage where he would even have ate the very pig's food and no man would give on to him, then he decided that he would go back to the Father. And here's the mercy of God. You see, if the book of Jonah is about anything, it's about the mercy of God. And God wanted to show mercy to the Ninevites. That's all he wanted to do, to be merciful to them. It's about the mercy of God. And God was merciful to those sailors on board that ship. And they came to a faith, believing in the true living God. And here God again is being merciful to Jonah. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The water surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. Those great fish can dive to great depths. Can you imagine being in that when that thing was dive-bombing to the depths of the ocean? And then up again for air. I'm not a very good sailor. I used to go deep sea fishing with guys in a boat. We used to go out to Larne Harbour and the boat used to go out there to the Maidens. Anybody know where the Maidens are, those lighthouses? Sometimes I was sick before I left the harbour. I'm, I'm all seriously, I mean that. And the rascals wouldn't let me off the boat. I said, please, before you go out, I'm only in the harbour. No, 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 just lie there, Gaudi, you're all right. Gaudi wasn't all right. Gaudi was booking over the end of the boat all night, so he was. I can't imagine what this man was feeling. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. And I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. I want you to notice something here in this story. I want you to notice how in his repentance how he didn't blame anyone, only himself. He blamed no one, only himself. You cast me into the sea. Your billows have went over me. You know, and that's one of the most important things in a prayer of repentance is to simply to look at ourselves and say, God, I messed up. I blew it. I've sinned. No one else. It's my fault. I've done it myself. And so Jonah's got the stage where even though technically it was the sailors who threw him overboard, but remember he asked them to do that, but actually... 
actually. He says, God, you were the one who caused the storm. And God was the one who prepared the great fish. But it was my fault. I deserve what I got. And you know, once somebody prays a prayer like that, a prayer of true repentance, it's almost, well, it's not almost, it is certain that God will hear that prayer. Listen to what the psalmist prayed. You remember the psalmist David in that terrible sin with Bathsheba? In his great prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, here's what he said. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, it is true, absolutely, that he sinned against Bathsheba. He most certainly sinned against Uriah, her husband. He had him killed. And he sinned against his own family. He sinned against his own nation. But most of all, and he came to realize above all that, he says, God, I have sinned terribly against you and against heaven. And that was the most important thing in his heart when he prayed that prayer. And God forgave him because he repented. And so here is Jonah's prayer of repentance. And he's asking the Lord for mercy. In 2 Samuel 24, King David decides that he's going to number all the fighting men of Israel. And Joab, his great commander, said, David, why are you doing this? Even he knew it was wrong. Because by numbering them, he was going to depend on his own strength, on his own army, rather than on God. But he says, no, I want them numbered. So the armies went out and they numbered all the young men. And they had a great number. And when all the census was taken and the results came to David, at that point he realized, God, I've done a wrong thing. And you can read that, Lord, I'm so sorry. I realize now that was a great sin. I should not have done that. And he knew that judgment was coming because the prophet God came in and said, God's going to give you three choices. There's either going to be a great famine in the land or he's going to hand you over to your enemies and there's going to be a plague come. Which one of those three would you like? How would you like that? <laughs> How would you like to make that choice? But David made the choice. He says, let me not fall into the hands of my enemies. Let me fall into the hand of God. And he fell into the hand of God and God sent a plague killed 70,000 men. And the angel came to smite Jerusalem and God says, stop. It's enough. Don't do any more. David said, Lord, don't afflict these. They're innocent. Afflict me. I'm the cause. But the trouble is, you see, if we backslide and we disobey God and we get away from God, it can affect our families. It can affect innocent people. And that's always a danger. And so here he is in the midst of this great fish's stomach and he prays this great prayer. And God heard his prayer and God answered his prayer and God delivered him. Verse 10, So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Imagine if you are standing on the beach that day. What must they have looked like? What must they have smelt like? And so here was the reluctant preacher and the repentant preacher. And now chapter 3, the revivalist preacher. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. came to him the second time 
Thank God for another chance. When Jonah was sloshing about in the belly of that great fish, he probably thought, Lord, I'll never get a chance again. Even if you deliver me from this hell I'm in, the ministry's gone, it's over. I'll never get another chance. But God is the God of the second chance, isn't he? And God comes to us the second time. In Acts chapter 7, whenever Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr, whenever he was before the Sanhedrin, on trial as it were, then the high priest said, are these things so? All the things he was being falsely accused of. And the high priest said, are these things so? And he said, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell, and God gave to him an inheritance in it. Now, if you were to read in Genesis 11, towards the end of that, in the beginning of Genesis 12, you would see the kind of chronology of that. You'd see how that God had come to him in Mesopotamia, where he lived. And how God had spoken to him. And how that it was his father, actually, got Abraham and his family, his wife and family, and Lot and his family, and caused them to leave. And then they got as far as Haran. And they dwelt there for a while. Now Haran was far from where he was supposed to be. He didn't actually know where he was supposed to be going. He was looking for a city whose builder and maker was got him out by faith. But he was far from where he ought to be. And then God came the second time. When his dad died there, God came the second time and said, Get out of here. You and your family. Leave your whole family, the extended family, the family that was left in his original home. Leave all of that. But those that's with you, leave right now and go where I'm going to show you. I'll lead you and guide you. God came the second time and spoke to him. And he obeyed. And of course, we call him the great father of the faith, don't we? And then, if you're to read on in the story of Stephen in Acts 7, where he's given his defense before the religious court, as it were, he talks about Stephen, but then he talks about Moses. And he said how that Moses, remember, was brought up in Pharaoh's household as this son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then when he became about 40, he knew he was going to be the deliverer of God's people. He knew that. And he went about it completely the wrong way. Remember how he saw an Egyptian badly mistreating an Israelite? And he hit him over the head with a shovel and killed him. Didn't think anybody saw him. But the next day, there was two Israelites that were fighting. And he jumped in, tried to separate them. They said, hold a minute, he says. Are you going to kill us the way you killed that Egyptian? And then he realized he had been found out. And in fear, he took off and went to Midian and spent the next 40 years there. Now you see, God had revealed to him, he had spoken to him, he had shown him that he was the deliverer, but he got into the flesh trying to do that. And he spent the next 40 years in the backside of the desert looking after sheep until he had the burning bush experience. And God came to him the second time. Peter. God came to Peter the second time, did he not? When he thought his ministry was over, he had denied the Lord. He went back to fishing. But the Lord came to him. 
that morning on the shore when they come back empty-handed. The Lord had made a little fire and I made a barbecue for them. I took him aside, asked him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He denied him three times, asked him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? I spoke to him the second time. And here is God speaking to Jonah the second time. Aren't you glad for another chance? Aren't you glad that God's the God of a second chance and maybe a third chance and a fourth chance, maybe a hundred chance, who knows? And he said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Now again, let me just stress something. The reason why he didn't go and he let the cat out of the bag in chapter 4 is because he says, God, I know you'd be gracious and you're long-suffering and you're compassionate. I know you would forgive them. And I really didn't want them forgiven. He didn't say that, but that's what he meant. I really, I really hate these people. I really, you'd rather judge them and slaughter them than forgive them. But leaving that aside, can you imagine today if you were a Jewish prophet, say, today, and God said, I want you to go to Afghanistan and I want you to go to the Taliban and tell them that I'm going to judge them unless they repent. I don't think you'd be too happy about that, would you? You might be a wee bit scared. Or imagine you're a Jewish prophet and God says, I want you to go to the mountains of Pakistan and there's Al-Qaeda guys up there, the jihadists, and I want you to go into the midst of them and say, Thus saith the Lord God. <laughs> I don't think you'd be overly excited about that. Well, Jonah wasn't overly excited about going into Nineveh because as I said this morning, these people were cruel beyond description. When these people captured people, they would decapitate them. They would flay the skin off them alive. These people knew no bounds in terror and inflicting pain on their enemies. And Jonah knew that. And he knew that they were the better enemies of his people. Actually, just about another two to three decades after this, the Assyrians were the ones who came in and they drove out the ten northern tribes called Israel and scattered them to the four winds. So this was a bad bunch. I mean, these people were bad to the bone, as we say, or bad hides, as you say, around Lurgan. And Jonah knew it. But now he's repented, and now he's coming, and God's speaking the second time, says, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. A three-day journey in extent. Now we're not exactly sure. Commentators are mixed about what this means. Uh, told you about some of the dimensions this morning. It had walls 100 feet high that you could drive three chariots abreast. The walls around the city alone was almost eight miles in circumference, and then there was the suburbs beyond that. Does that mean here that it took Jonah three days to walk through the whole city? Or does it mean it took him three days to get to the city? We're not sure. But what we do know, it was an immense ancient city. It was a huge metropolis. And it may have taken three days actually to go around it with all the suburbs and all the rest of it. And so Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. <laughs> That's a pretty short message, isn't it? Seven words. The said in the Hebrew is only five words. I mean, that must be the shortest preach ever in the Bible. Certainly the shortest one he ever preached. And it wasn't very intellectual. Sure it wasn't. And it wasn't highly theological either. Sure it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't a fancy sermon by any standards. 
It was just seven words. Listen to it. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the message. That's all he had to say to these people. And he walked through the whole city. And that's all he said. Everywhere he went, groups of people would be standing in the street corner. People would be coming out of shops. be coming out of bars and restaurants, we would say today. And a crowd, anywhere there was a crowd, he'd go tell them, he'd say, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Must have been a strange sight. Particularly if he hadn't washed himself since he came out of the belly of that great fish. Now here's another interesting thing. The Ninevites worshipped a fish god. Dagon was one of their fish gods who was half man and half fish. And maybe, who knows, maybe, maybe they heard the story before, Noah even, or before, Noah, before Jonah even got there. Maybe that got their attention. We don't know that. doesn't say that. But more than likely, more than likely, it was the Spirit of God that spoke to their hearts and absolutely shook them to the core. You know, in the prayer meeting last week, I think it was, or a week before, I read a little excerpt out of a book about the 1859 revival. And, and oftentimes in the churches, the preacher never even got to preach. Never even got to preach. Before he even got into the pulpit, people were falling over all over the church on their knees, crying out for mercy. And it wasn't just for a couple of minutes. Sometimes they cried for days, days, for the mercy of God to come. People was on the street. People fell on their knees in the middle of the street, crying for mercy. Farmers in the fields fell on the cornfields, crying for mercy. Little children in the schools, in the playground on their knees, crying for mercy. And nobody was even preaching at them. So we can never underestimate the Spirit of God when He comes in power and conviction. This is all this man had to say. This is all God told him to say. And he did it. And then look what happens. So the people of Nineveh believe God. For that's a big... <laughs> understatement of ever there was one. Think of this. The people of Nineveh believed God. Just didn't believe Him. They believed God. Something happened in their heart. And suddenly, for the first time in their entire lives, these pagan people believed in the one true and the living God because the Spirit of God so moved upon their hearts. This city, by the way, the last verse in chapter 4, the very last verse of the story, God says there's 120,000 who doesn't know their right hand from their left. That's talking about infants, little children. 120,000 little infants. There was at least Five hundred to 600,000 inhabitants in this city. This is certainly the greatest revival of the Old Testament, maybe of all time. One man going about speaking seven words, and in one day, could we say, maybe three days at the most, suddenly half a million people repents and comes to God, believing. That's a mighty miracle, isn't it? There's not a preacher alive today who wouldn't like to have results like that. <laughs> but notice here, the people believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. From the king on his throne to the peasant in the street, every man jack of them turned to God overnight. 
So this has got to be one of the greatest revivals ever. And here's what the, they proclaim throughout the city. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. He is putting all the animals in the fast too. Then let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. They were noted for their violent behavior. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Ah, there's true repentance. There's true revival. When people put away from them their former ways. You know, sometimes you wonder about people who mix professions in Christ. Sometimes you don't see much change. And you wonder, how genuine is it? When you see real change, you know it's genuine. Don't you? Again, that revival in Ireland, 1859, in the shipyard, people were bringing back stuff they stole by the bar loads they had to build a shed to put it into. That's when you know there's revival. When people make restitution and they're genuinely sorry for what they've done. And these people were genuine. Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Aren't you glad that mercy triumphs over judgment? <laughs> By the way, these people, not these exact ones, but generations later, 100 years later to be exact, that generation of Ninevites had stopped living for God and had gone back to their wicked ways. And God did judge them severely so that their city was destroyed. It was made a heap on the end of the dustbin of history. But right now, God is giving them a chance. He's giving them a chance because he's God like that, isn't he? And so we have the Reluctant preacher, repentant preacher, the revivalist preacher. And then incredibly, we have the resentful preacher. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. <laughs> I mean, you can almost hardly get your head around this. Here's a man who witnessed, who was instrumental in bringing about the greatest revival ever in the history of the Old Testament. And instead of rejoicing and being glad, he was mad and angry about it. <laughs> and so he prayed to the Lord and said, Our Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. <laughs> I mean, if it wasn't so serious, it would be funny. But it's serious. This is the second time this man wanted to die. This man's got a death wish. And God still won't let go of him. And he's complaining bitterly to God. Now here's a lesson for us to learn. If you start complaining to God and you keep that up, I guarantee you, you'll end up complaining about God. He started up complaining to God, he ends up complaining about God. Dangerous thing to complain about God. But that's the state he'd got himself into. You see, he did the right thing but he didn't do it with the right heart. 
Because he did the right thing, God honored the right thing. The right thing was to go and to preach what God had said, and he did that, and God honored that. But he didn't get blessed because he didn't do it with the right heart. And this is why often people for a while goes on who's not living right, and they're getting good results because they're doing the right thing, but they're not doing it with the right heart. They don't get blessed. Somebody could preach the gospel, you know, with a wrong heart, but preach the right gospel, and somebody could respond and get saved. Or somebody could respond and get healed or get delivered, whatever the case may be, and they go on blessed, but the person who delivered it didn't because their heart's not right. And this is what happened to this man. Then God asked him a question. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, look at yourself. Listen to yourself. Is it, is it right for you to be angry? What right have you got to be angry with me? What right have you to? That's a good question, isn't it? Is it right for you to be angry? You know, in a sense, in the first two chapters, he's like the prodigal son, isn't he? He ran away and then come back. But now he's like the elder brother. When the prodigal son came back and the father threw a party for him, what happened to the elder brother? He got angry. And he wasn't just angry with his elder brother. He was angry with the father, wasn't he? He was angry with the father too. And so the Lord says, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. And there he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. What he should have been doing, he's just seen revival. He's just seen 500 to 600,000 people coming to faith. What he should have been doing, because he's the only one who could have done it, he should have been in there teaching and preaching night and day, building them up in the faith. That's what he should have been doing. But he's too angry. He's too bitter. He's mad at God. You know, the trouble is, you start getting mad at God, you'll get mad at everybody. Start complaining to God and complaining about God, you start to complaining about everybody and everything. You know, that's what happens to people when they backslide or they get out of sync with God. You know, they start complaining about God and complaining about church and complaining about this. Complaining. Before they're just complaining about everything. Car breaks down, they go home and kick the cat. I mean, what's the cat got? Sorry, Liz, uh, you're a cat lover. I know you'd never do a thing like that, of course. Gary might, but you wouldn't. <laughs> but you get the point. And so he's neglecting his ministry, what he was called to do. Because as a servant of Jehovah, as a Jewish prophet, remember the Jews were chosen by God to be assigned to the nations. If anybody was going to teach them about the one true and living God, it was going to be the Jews. And he's a Jewish prophet. And he's not doing it. He's neglecting his ministry, his gifting. So he sits outside the city, on a hill, makes himself a little kind of a shack there, and he sits in a big huff. Could imagine him sitting with a big long sour puss on him, looking all over the city. Well, let's see what God will do. God said I was going to tell him 40 days he was going to destroy them. So, well, let's see if that happens. But sure, they've all repented, and sure, they've all come to faith. Well, maybe it won't last. With any luck, they'll all backslide. <laughs> That's what he was thinking. And God will just wipe them out. And then I can go home happy. Can you imagine a preacher would be like that? Huh? Hmm. Preachers who are out of the will of God can be a whole lot of things. So he's sitting to see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah 
that it might be a shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. God's still being merciful. In spite of this backslidden, angry, sullen, bitter, prejudiced, bigoted prophet, God's still merciful. God hasn't given up on him. And so, God prepared a plant. <laughs> Listen to this. The plant, God prepared the plant and it came up over Jonah that it might be a shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. In my margin it says that Jonah rejoiced with great joy. This is the first time in the whole story he's happy. <laughs> he's a miserable so-and-so, isn't he? The first time he's actually happy. He's smiling for the first time in the whole story. So he's sitting there all smug, all pleased with himself. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. God prepared a great storm. God prepared a great fish. God prepared a great plant. And he prepared a great wind. And he prepared a little worm. A great fish. A little worm. Whatever it takes to turn this man. Never underestimate what God can do to get his servants' hearts changed. It didn't seem like much, a little worm, but it sure ate into that plant. And if Jonah was angry before this, why, well, I tell you, he's really angry now. If he wanted to die before, he certainly wants to die now. And then God asked him the second question. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Jonah, listen to me. Look at yourself. This is ridiculous. You're actually angry about a plant? Look at all these people in the city. Look what I've done for them. Look at the mercy I've shown them. Look at my goodness and my grace towards them. And all you can think about is this stupid plant. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. <laughs> He's this man, he is absolutely... In fact, you hear it with dying, isn't it? I mean, he just can't wait to die. And then the Lord says this. You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in the night and perished in the night. Should I not have pity? Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, infants, and much livestock. The innocents, all right, the adults, they were wicked, they were evil, they were cruel. They certainly deserve my judgment, but I gave them mercy instead. But the innocents, the infants, the innocent cattle, they're even angry about that, that I didn't spare them, that I spared them and I didn't slaughter them. Hmm. Remember Luke 13, as Jesus was wont to do, he would break all their Sabbath rules that God hadn't given them, but the Pharisees had instituted themselves. And on the Sabbath, this little woman came to Jesus 
and she was bent over double. And Jesus laid his hands on her and says, Woman, you're loosed from your infirmity. And she rose up straight as a stick. Now you'd have thought everybody would be pleased with that, wouldn't you? You'd have thought all those preachers have been delighted. But they weren't. They get mad. And he says, Aren't there enough days in the week to do this? Do you have to do this on the Sabbath? Can you believe the callousness? The heartlessness? Because of their hatred against Jesus and their prejudice against Jesus. Remember what Jesus told them? He said, you're a bunch of hypocrites, the whole lot of you. He says, which one of you on the Sabbath day have an ox that needs some water? Wouldn't you unhook it and go and give it a drink of water on the Sabbath day? He says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. Am I not right to loose this woman that Satan had bound for 18 years? Am I not right to loose her and let her go? You're more concerned about the cow than you are for this woman. And that shut the whole lot of them up. They couldn't answer that. So here's this prophet, this preacher. And he ends up resentful. Now, I don't know how he ended up in his life at the end. Because the Bible doesn't tell us. It kind of ends abruptly here. You'd like to hope and think that at some point he would see sense. At some point he would change. At some point he'd look back and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I really, really messed up my life. Please forgive me. And maybe he did. Who knows? The Bible doesn't tell us that. It just stops abruptly. But it leaves us with a question. And here's the question. Is God not right? Is God not right? Is God not great for showing mercy? See, this book is about the mercy of God. It's all through the book. And here's a man angry about the mercy of God. And God says, am I not right to be merciful? And that's a question he leaves with us tonight. Is he not right to be merciful? Is he not God? Can he not show mercy to whom he shows mercy? Remember the ones that went out working in the fields? Some in the early morning, some in the mid-afternoon, some in the evening, some just before it got dark. And he paid them all the same money. And the ones that started in the morning, they get angry at the one who just maybe got the one hour, final hour, and they get paid the same. He says, wait a minute, it's my money. Can I not do with it as I want? Did I not bargain with you for the, for the amount that I gave you? Did, I not, did we not make it a bargain? Yes. Well, I made a bargain for him. It's my money. I can do what I want with it. In other words, it's my mercy. I can do what I want with it, and I can give it to whoever I want. It's none of your business. It's my mercy. And that's the question he leaves with us. That's the question that we're supposed to answer for ourselves. Is God not right? When you're tempted to think that God perhaps is wrong, or he's not fair, or he shouldn't do that, or it's not right that he did that, then we need to ask the question, is God not right? And of course, the only answer is, yes, God is always right. So then we've got to examine ourselves and say, well, is there a possibility that I'm wrong? Of course, we don't always think we're wrong. Sure we don't. Some of us think there's no possibility that we could ever be wrong. But of course, that's nonsense, isn't it? It's God who is right. And Jonah had to learn that lesson, that God is the one who is right. Let me just finish by saying this, that there's a, a, you know, I've preached this message today and I've tried to do it on a personal level that includes all of us at a pastoral level. But there's a bigger picture to this. And I just hinted at it a moment ago with the nation of Israel as supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, in a sense. It showed the, supposed to show them the mercy of God, the goodness of God, the compassion of God, the wisdom of God. 
Rabbi Telushkin. Not a Christian, he's a rabbi, he's a Jewish rabbi. And I have a book called Biblical Literacy. And I just happened to dip into it this afternoon. And I just discovered a little thing that I never knew before. And he's talking about the book of Jonah. He says, among its important themes is the idea of a Jewish mission to the world. Remember it says that God said to Abraham that he had blessed the whole world through his seed. Ultimately, and against his will, Jonah preaches about God and his moral message to the world. And his message influences people for good. This is one reason why on Yom Kippur, the Jewish people's holiest day, this short book is read in its entirety during the afternoon service. In addition, the book of Jonah, Jonah underscores God's love for all human beings. At the end, he speaks of the people of Nineveh as his children, just as God speaks in other passages about the Israelites. And for those Israelites... Remember, this is a rabbi's writing this. And for those Israelites who might feel that they are ethical, ethical superiors of their Gentile neighbors, the book of Jonah holds out a surprising lesson. The very model that is offered Jews on Yom Kippur on how to repent is based on the behavior of the Gentiles of Nineveh. In other words, God is showing them how to truly repent what they should have known themselves. And he's shown them through a Gentile people. Isn't it a fact that sometimes we as believers, that sometimes an unbeliever will show more grace and more compassion than we do and show us how it should be done? Isn't that a fact? So here's the story of Jonah. The reluctant preacher. I wish I could tell you that it ended up for him wonderfully well, but I can't because the Bible closes. But it deliberately closes at that point, so it leaves us with that question. Is God not right in his judgments and showing his mercy and doing what he does? And the answer is, God is right. And he's never wrong, even though sometimes we think he is, but he never is. So we need to learn the lesson. God is always right, even when we think he's wrong. He's never wrong. He's always right. Let's pray.